All right, friends, welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Torah Studies. This is our weekly look at the Torah portion. Today is Wednesday, August 11, 2021. We're all here together to study Torah, and that is exactly what we are going to do in this incredible class. I hope everybody packed. Um, you guys packed for tonight? You guys all ready? Because um, we're taking a, a trip. We're taking a trip inside the great travel ban, the great Jewish travel ban. I know that sounds a little... Uh, a little contradictory. How can you take a trip inside a travel ban? The whole point is that you don't travel when there's a travel ban. I know that. I'm just saying that um, we're going to take a trip down Jewish to, to Jewish history to look at the origins of a Jewish travel ban. Today we live with travel bans, right? Certain people, you can't come from one country to the other. COVID, etc. Delta. Um, but in Jewish law, there is a certain place. There is a certain place that we are not meant to travel to and to live in. Um, unmute yourself if you know right at the top of the class which place I am talking about. Ray buzzes in early. Ray, jump in. Egypt. Excellent. Egypt, beautiful. You get all, all of the extra cookies. Um, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. The Torah tells us in a very interesting and semi. Sorry? Steve, what'd you say? Spain. 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 Okay, Spain, I don't know if there's a formal prohibition, certainly not a biblical one. The only one that we have a biblical prohibition is regarding Egypt. So, um,. Dr. David is writing about the Temple Mount. Yes, but that's for reasons of ritual purity and impurity. For reasons of the country itself, the only country that we have biblically is a prohibition against is, the, uh, is, is Egypt. Now, tonight we're going to explore the origins of this mitzvah. We're going to explore the rationale for the mitzvah. We're going to explore the parameters and the contours of this mitzvah. And when I say mitzvah, I mean this prohibition. And we're also going to explore, of course, every law has its exceptions. What are the exceptions to the law? And finally, what lessons can we learn for our lives in contemporary times, in today's day and age, from this really interesting mitzvah? So we're going to explore the travel ban to Egypt tonight in Torah studies. So where does the ban originate? In other words, where do we learn about the ban first? It's an interesting um, context. The Torah in this week's Torah portion, so just to reset, we're in Shoftim. Um, it's one of the Torah portions in Deuteronomy, and this constitutes the, the final message or messages that Moses is delivering to his people before his passing. Famously, Moses gathers the people 37 days, day in and day out, and gathers them from morning to night, and he speaks to them about things they need to know, right? It's like the book, things you need to know before you go to Israel. Yeah, things you need to know before you embark on the next chapter of, of the Jewish journey. And Moses is delivering these messages. Well, one of the things that he says in this week's Torah portion is regarding the Jewish monarchy. He says, when you come to the land and you're going to be tempted or you'll want to um, have a king, so appoint a king. However, when it comes to appointing a king, there are certain um, things that you shouldn't do like other kings. Because, as you might know, um, monarchies can quickly devolve into corruption. And so the Torah tries to kind of keep us in a place where that corruption 
wouldn't happen or shouldn't happen. So that's kind of the, uh, the background of this. What we're going to do tonight is look at this biblical law about the king and the checks and balances on the king's power. And from here, we're going to learn something interesting about Egypt. I'm going to share my screen with you. So for those that are in person, we are on page 107 in the booklets. For those of you online, we are also shockingly on the same page, 107. Can you imagine? Who would have thought? All right, page 107. And Ray, if you don't mind, um, the section is entitled Hold Your Horses, which is absolutely fantastic. Text 1A, please read the biblical text. Um, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and live there and you say, I will set a king over myself like all the nations around me. You shall set a king over you, one whom the Lord your God chooses from among your brothers. You shall set a king over yourself. You shall not appoint a foreigner over yourself, one who is not your brother. Only he may not acquire many horses for himself so that he will not bring the people back to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. For the Lord said to you, you shall not return that way anymore. Okay, so we have, again, an interesting kind of wrinkle to the laws of that govern Jewish governance or Jewish monarchy. And that is that, yes, you appoint the king, but the king, um, well, the Torah also continues, shouldn't have too many wives, too much gold and silver, basically things that lead to corruption, but also, again, interestingly, also not too many horses. Now, a person might say, what's, what's wrong with horses? Like, horses seem so innocent. Right? Like, what's the big deal? I have horses. It's a thing. Right? I got horses. I'm a king. I have a lot of horses, a lot of chariots. Torah says don't have a lot. Why? The Torah tells us why. Because it's something to do with Egypt. Something about not going back to Egypt. So, right? This verse says, don't have too many horses, Mr. King. Right? So that you will not bring the people back to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Well, what's the connection between Egypt and horses? I'm glad you asked. So we're going to learn this straight from the mouth of Rashi. Um, straight from Rashi. Let's explore text 1B. Ray, you're doing a great job. I'm giving you the ones. If you don't mind, please read text 1B. Here's Rashi, clarifying. Page 108. He may not acquire many horses for himself, but only what he needs for his chariots, so that he will not cause the people to return to Egypt. To purchase, to purchase the horses, because horses come from there, as it is said of Solomon, and the chariots that went up and left Egypt said for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. All right, so apparently, as Rashi says, apparently Egypt was a very popular supplier of chariots and horses. And so the Torah says that because you, the king, might want to have a lot of chariots and a lot of horses, right, have some extra horses in the stable, so that's going to necessitate wheeling and dealing with Egypt. You know how Jews are, right? You know, right? We know how Jews are. Jews find the business. That's it. That's it. They're going to move to Egypt, and they're going to get it wholesale and sell it retail, right? That's the way we do it, right? You buy wholesale, you sell retail, 
Shalom Yisrael, everyone's happy, especially the middleman. And, uh, and that's it. So what's going to happen? As the commentaries tell us, what's going to happen is you're going to have Jews that move to Egypt and settle there. And that's what we don't want. So buy, just to clarify, because I think it's really important that I clarify this right now. Buying horses from Egypt in and of itself is kosher. Okay? Okay, let me, let me take a half step back. There's a bit of a progression here. The king shouldn't have too many horses. Why not? Because, if, because acquiring the horses would necessitate buying them from Egypt. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Well, buying them from Egypt will ultimately end up in Jews moving to Egypt to be part of this horse trading, horse selling enterprise. And thus, Jews are going to be moving back to Egypt. And that's something that we don't want. As the Torah itself says in the verse in text 1a, for the Lord said to you, Moses tells the people, God has told you, you shall not return that way anymore. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't live there. And thus, stay away from the horses. No excessive horses because that's going to open up that temptation or that, that, that uh, the reality of people, Jews moving to Egypt and we don't want that. Are you with me in how this is a roundabout way of, of, of kind of understanding that there's a prohibition about moving to Egypt? Are you with me on this? So from the fact that a king shouldn't have too many horses. And the reason why not too many horses is because they come from Egypt. And what's the problem if they come from Egypt Then someone's going to move there? We learn that Jews should not move back to Egypt. Yes? You with me? Okay. So now I'm going to ask... Yeah, jump. What do you mean by go back to Egypt? Oh. To move there is, is one aspect of it. Right. Good. You're asking the good questions. Which is, the good news is, we have 45 minutes to cover exactly what you're asking, because literally what we're going to do tonight is explore the parameters of this Egypt travel ban. Is it vacationing? Is it business? Is it moving temporarily? Is it moving permanently? Wherein lies the problem, which I think is exactly your question, and that's exactly what we're going to explore tonight. What is the problem or, or it, wherein lies the, the prohibition with regards to moving or living or traveling to Egypt? So we're going to define that soon. But first, I need to ask you all a question. So get ready to hit unmute or you can hit unmute right now because this is an open question for all of you. Without moving, any, without moving forward in, 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 in texts and in sources, if I would ask you, why do you think that the Torah bans moving to Egypt, moving back to Egypt? What would you say? Why does the Torah not want us to move back to Egypt? What do you think because is... When, when we left, they, they, they said, the Egyptians had ways, these shall not be your ways, when, they, when Moses uh, showed the people the Torah. Okay, good, 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 I like that. What else? What other reasons what might we think that God doesn't want us to go back to Egypt? Why the travel ban? Why the ban to Egypt? Jump in. I have one. Yeah, go. That, um... That was a terrible time for the Jews, where they were very, very oppressed. And why should we go to a place where it was so horrible? Good. See, that, sorry, that's what I think. That's like the first rationale that comes to mind for me is, yeah, obviously don't move back to Egypt because it was so traumatic. Like, don't put yourself back in the trauma. They're bad people. There's trauma. Stay away. Yeah. Why, why, did, why did Solomon take his first wife from, as Pharaoh's daughter? This is a good question. 
Good. Did he go to Egypt and pick her up? Or I, did he the, I, send her out to uh, the Holy Land? This is be, this is be, that's a really good question. I think this is before, um, you know, dating apps. So maybe he had to travel. I don't know. I'm not sure how that worked back then, but that was a long time ago. Dr. Maxi, jump in. So is it possible maybe from a more metaphorical or spiritual level, we don't need to re-enslave ourselves? I like it. I like it. Good. So the suggestion here is that maybe, you know, Egypt represents slavery, servitude, represents this idea of being confined and stuck. So we don't want to do that to ourselves. Good. Excellent. Good. So I want to share with you, oh, by the way, the, yeah, one more thing. sure. Terrible things happen to, the Egypt, to, happen to the Egyptians because of the Jews. Blood, frogs, killing of the firstborn. Right. So, <laughs> So it's like, if we were to go back, yes, we want you back, we want you back. Yeah, do they really want us back? Right. Or they just dead? <laughs> Mark, know? I'm telling you, an interesting little twist over there. You're saying it's good, it's better for the Egyptians that we just agree to disagree and stay away from each other. Exactly. Good. Very interesting. Listen, I knew that... I have, I have one suggestion. Yes. Um, it was God that put us there. Okay. And God took us out. Oh. Who are we to say, you know, we're going to undo all your plans, right. God, and we're going to go back voluntarily. Right. Good. Right. God said you're out. And we're like, nope, we're back in. I don't think so. <laughs> right. You can't do that. Excellent. No. So I knew that opening this up to y'all would, would, would lead to wonderful ideas. Uh, we're going to share. Also, yeah. Oh, it was a land of idols. Oh, hold on. Hold on, you're saying American idols? American idol or Egyptian idol? Oh, Egyptian idol, okay. Okay, good, good. I'll tell you, the Egyptians might have been in denial, but they definitely did have the, the idols. So let's talk about that for a moment because... Be but, but, but also, yes. um, can I say one sure, thing? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so so the, the whole theme it seems to me about this is to is is um, it's it's ethical behavior and non and non um, idol worship behavior because it keeps repeating itself in this parsha and the last parsha and and all the and, and in the past you know in the holiness code about come on say Eretz Mitzrayim don't don't be like Right. The Egyptians. Right. And this whole thing is, do not succumb to to the pressure. You're coming into this land. Don't succumb to don't succumb to the ways of the people you're whose land you're inheriting. Right. And don't succumb to the ways of the Egyptians. Good. That's. The I love it. Schaz and Ben is saying you got to read it in context, and you are absolutely right. And Adina Malka, you are right, and everyone's right, but. Let's focus on Rambam because Rambam no, echoes. On the roof. He's, he's right. He's, he's right. By the way, by the way, to your point, Chazen Ben, we can walk like an Egyptian, but we cannot walk to the Egyptians. And here is why. I'm going to pull up the text, text 2A. This is Torah and pop culture from some decades ago. Page 204, as I share my screen with... Y'all, text two, that's how we roll here. Text 2A, Rambam. I'm going to read Rambam. 
Here we go. Rambam here is safe for our mitzvot. He's counting the 630 mitzvot. Here we get up to prohibition 46 out of 365. The 46th prohibition is that we are forever forbidden from living, living, okay, because the question was what are the parameters, living in the land of Egypt. The purpose of this prohibition is so that we should not learn from their heresy and not come to imitate their behavior, which the Torah considers wicked. Right? Exactly what some of you said. The source of this prohibition is God's statement, exalted be he, you must never again return on that path. Okay, so here's Rambam, here's Maimonides, giving us the rationale. He doesn't just tell us what the mitzvah is, don't live in Egypt. He says, and the rationale is so that we don't learn from the heresy. We don't learn from the wicked spiritual behavior of them. And that's why we're not supposed to live there. Now you might ask. So why did he live there? Huh? So why did he live there? You're asking a good question. We have 35 minutes. Part of that will be exploring how could Rambam himself, my mind himself, live there. These are good questions. So trust me. You know, here's the thing. It's not like... There's a hole in the class like, oh my, we totally missed the blind spot of Rambam. Rambam's living in Egypt is a huge part of conversation tonight as we explore the parameters of when and where a person can and cannot move to Egypt. So it's a great question. It's really, I would call it the elephant in the room. So absolutely, we're going to explore it. So let's jump back into the text because before we do that, I need to clarify one more thing, text 2B. Rambam says... That the prohibition, sorry, scrolling and scrolling, the prohibition is living there, right? As you see, they're living. However, business is okay. You can travel there for business, text 2B. Uh, Rambam says, however, one may go there to Egypt for business or to pass through to another land. So if you're traveling through and your flight is a stop in Cairo, no big deal. If you're going there for business, enjoy. The Jerusalem Talmud says clearly, Rambam says, you may not return there to live but may return there to do business and trade or to conquer another land. In other words, on your way, you know, just you know, regular Tuesday, you're on your way to conquer a land, you can go through Egypt, no big deal, not a problem. Okay, so what do we have here? Bottom line. Bottom line is that the Torah says in a roundabout way regarding kings and horses about not going back to Egypt. Maimonides says, this is one of the prohibitions of the Torah. Take it away from kings. It's not just about kings and horses. Let's, let's get Saudi Arabia because they have oil. Maybe. Okay, I don't know. I'm not... Listen, honestly, I, didn't, I don't expect that in this class we're going to advocate for global conquest and all sorts of resource, uh, you know, um, 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 alloc reallocation. But nonetheless, we'll have a discussion after the class. But anyway, but back to our point. So there's a prohibition, again, not even separated from kings and horses, um, bottom line is, you and I, by Torah law, are not supposed to live in Egypt. We can go there for business, we can go there passing through, whatever it is, but not live there. Now, before we deal with the elephant in the room, what about Rambam? What about the Radvaz? What about the, the Abarbanel? What about these great... What about the Right, okay, good. So before we get... Good. So before we get to these questions, I want to present something else that is going to lead us to what I believe is a really, really powerful question. Um, so here's a little bit of a history, uh, history note. So there was a, a nation that is known as the, uh, um, Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria with an A-A-S-S-S. -S -S. 
Assyria, whatever, Assyria. And why? the Assyrians. Good. So Assyria was led by a king whose name was Sancherev. Don't ask me to pronounce it in English. And Sancherev, he lived around the 6th century before the, com before the Common Era. So that's when he lived. He lived about 2,600 years ago. He wanted to conquer the land of Israel, destroy the temple. His plans were thwarted famously. King Chizkiyo, Hezekiah was reigning at that time. Isaiah was the prophet, just to give you a little bit of a historical hook over there. Anyway, Sancherev failed in his attempt to conquer the land of Israel, but what he did was create upheaval in the region at large. He conquered many lands, other lands, and his go-to um, technique, which by the way, other leaders, other, um, yeah, other leaders um, also did throughout history was he went into a place, conquered it, and then mixed people around. He basically displaced the, um, uh, the natives of a country. So he took people, let's say Egypt, for example. He took the Egyptians and moved them to another country and took people from another country and moved them to Egypt basically to break the strength of a place. The strength of a, of, of a nation lies in its people and its uh, sense of you know, its sense of national pride and a sense of cohesiveness. If you can kind of disrupt that, then they're putty in your hands and, and less likely to, to revolt against the conquering authority. That was his strategy. So what he did was, in the region, in the entire region of the Middle East, he basically was moving around people here and there. Now, this actually has an impact. This has the ramifications in halach and Jewish law. Where does it have ramifications in Jewish law? So I'll tell you. In Jewish law, it says in Torah, it's a biblical prohibition, the Torah says that one is not allowed to marry someone from certain nationalities. Sorry, a Jew is not allowed to marry individuals from certain nationalities, even if they convert. One of them is Ammon, an, Am an Ammonite, even if they convert, you can't, you can't accept them, certainly not right away, into the, to marrying. They're Jewish, but they can't marry into the Jewish community. They have to marry a fellow Ammonite convert. Um, Ammon, Moab, um, what is the other one? Um, we have also Edom is also not allowed to, to convert and marry in right away. And Mitzrayim and Egypt. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the biblical law. The biblical law says that certain nations, even after the individual might convert, they cannot marry into the Jewish community until X number of generations, and they have to marry other fellow converts first, and then whatever. Okay. So the question is, does this law still apply? today? The answer is, I'm giving you the answer right away. The answer is no, it does not apply today. Right? Somebody from Egypt that converts to Judaism is allowed to marry in right away. Why? Because of what I told you. Because they're not Egyptian. Right? They're not Egyptian anymore because the people that live in Egypt after Sancherev's time, this is 2,600 years ago. This is not like, oh, we live in a modern world, we live in a global world, everyone's moving around. No, this is 2,600 years ago. Sancherev came in, the king came in, and he moved everybody around. So all of those original nations with the original people, we don't know who anyone is. So the persons, the people living in Egypt are not necessarily OG, original, original um, Egyptians, and thus the prohibition does not apply any longer. Does this make sense? Raise your hand if yes. Yes? Okay. 
I'm assuming everyone's raising their hands or wants to, just, you know, who can be bothered to raise your hand? Okay, now let's get, I want to show you some text just to support what I just said, so you know I'm not making this up. Take a look at text number three from Rambam. The same Maimonides, we're sticking with him. Here's what he says. When Sennacherib, I'm just going to say Sennacherib, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, arose, he confused the identities of all the nations, mixing them together and exiling them from their place. The Egyptians, listen to this, the Egyptians that live in the land of Egypt at present are of other nationalities. They're not original Egyptians. This also applies with regards to the Edomites in the field of Edom. Inasmuch as these four forbidden nations, I told you the four, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Egypt. Inasmuch as these four forbidden nations became intermingled with all the nations of the world with whom it is permitted to marry once they convert, all converts are thus permitted today. Ta-da, that's the big line, right? That's, that's, the big, that's the big idea. All converts are thus permitted today. Right away. For when any of them separates themselves from, uh, from them by converting, we operate under the assumption, under the presumption that they, that they became separate from the majority. In other words, somebody from Egypt says, I'm converting to Judaism. Great, you converted. So the question is, well, are they original Egyptian or are they from the mixed, you know, from... So since the majority is not originally Egyptian, even those who live in Egypt, the majority of them are not originally Egyptian, and it hasn't been like that for 2,600 years, right? So we assume, we presume, Rambam says, that they became separate, they converted out from the majority who live in Egypt that are not originally Egyptian. I hope this makes sense. Yes? Yes? Good. Therefore, in the present age, says Maimonides, um, what, like eight, nine hundred years ago, um, in all places, whenever a convert converts, whether they be an Edomite, an Egyptian, an Ammonite, a Moabite, a Cushite, or from any of the other nations, whether male or female, he or she is permitted, permitted, to marry among the Jewish people immediately. There is no prohibition for three generations, four generations, ten generations, all of that biblical stuff that we haven't really gotten into the details of. Those prohibitions don't, don't, um, are no longer applic applicable. After Sancherev, this guy up here, king of Assyria, came and mixed everybody up. So again, just to understand the rationale. Because this guy, because this king, came and pulled the Egyptians out of Egypt, and took them elsewhere and brought other people into Egypt. The majority of any individual nation is not made up of original indigenous people or native people of that, of that land. Thus, even though an Egyptian that converts is not allowed to marry in, it's probably not an Egyptian, right? Somebody says, I'm converting to Judaism. Mazel tov. Welcome to the tribe. Oh, you're Egyptian. No big deal. Why? Because the assumption is or the presumption is that the majority are not Egyptian, so the odds are not Egyptian. And in halacha, you go after the rov, that means after the majority. Majority is not Egyptian, so shalom al everything's cool. Okay, this applies to Egypt, have, this applies to Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Yes, mom, jump in. Yes, yeah, I have one question. Sure. What happened to Amalek? Are we allowed ah, to Ah, Amalek. Amalek, we also don't know who they are. Now, on Malik, there wasn't a prohibition against marrying them for right. the simple reason that if you encounter one, you should do other things other than marry them, which, which yeah. you know, I'm not advocating a genocide. Nonetheless, that's what the Torah says. The Torah says we have to wipe out the, the Amalekites. Dealing with the issue of Amalek, we'll have to say for another time um, to, to, to explore that, that wild issue in the Torah. But 
suffice to say that no, one is not allowed to marry an Amalekite. Um, there's other mitzvot associated with that. But when it comes to Amalek, we don't know who Amalek is. Yeah, but when it comes to Egypt, my, my we also question, know who it is. Yes. My question is that Rambam mentions all these other tribes, right? Yeah. But the one tribe that we took Jerusalem from, who are the Jebusites, the Yavusim, he doesn't mention. Okay. My question is, why doesn't he mention the Yavusi? Because that's the main, and especially today, when well, I've read in the Palestinian literature that they claim that they are the descendants of the Jebusites. That gives them a claim to Jerusalem. I, I hear so, you. This is a question that's outside of my, my ability to answer. I don't know the answer okay. to this question. We would have to look it up in Rambam or the commentaries. But anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked. I don't see it, I don't see it in any of the Rambam. That's uh, why I don't see they ever seen. And I, so therefore, yeah. uh, Temple Mount is obvious. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. That's, that's fine. If that's your conclusion, no, no, no problem. To be the Prime Minister of Israel, and I will solve that problem. There you go. Sorry. Done. Perfect. Okay. Okay, now back to back to our class. So here's here's the important thing. The important thing to extract from this is that we don't have clarity on who's an Egyptian, who's not an Egyptian. So you assume that the person that's coming to convert and wants to marry in is not an actual Egyptian. Which begs the question, are you with me? Is the travel ban still around? Are you with me on the question? Yes. It's not trauma. Yeah. It's not um, you know, bad vibes, it's idolatrous practices of, of Egypt. And when it comes to idolatrous practices of Egypt, if the Egyptians, if the original Egyptians aren't there, so then what's the problem? I hope you understand my question. The question is, if it's okay to marry an Egyptian convert because they're not likely Egyptian, so then what's the problem today to move and live in Egypt because likely the majority of Egyptians are not Egyptians, so then there's no problem. The heresy, the idolatry, they're not Egyptians. There shouldn't be a problem. The question is, is the ban, here's my question, is the ban on living in Egypt still applicable today? Because we did away with we did away with the marriage ban because there's no longer Egyptians, really, there's no longer original Egyptians. Did we do away with the living in Egypt ban. And so here's an indication from the Talmud. Here is an indication from the Talmud, text 4a. Let me share this one with you. Once again, page 111, from, this time from the Talmud. It is taught, okay, so <laughs> before we do this, let's talk about a Jewish community that was in Egypt, a great Jewish community, Alexandria. It is taught in a bright that the Rabbi Yehuda says, one who, one who did not see the great synagogue of Alexandria of Egypt never saw the glory of the Jewish people. They said that it, was a, that, it was, that it was like a large basilica with a colonnade within a colonnade. At times there were 600,000 men and another 600,000 men in it, twice the number of those who left Egypt. In it there were 71 golden chairs corresponding to the 71 members of the great Sanhedrin, the great Jewish court, each of which consisted of no less than 21,000 talents of gold. And there, was, and there was a wooden platform in the center. The sexton of the synagogue would stand on it with scarves in his hand, and when it came time for the congregation to answer Amen to the cantor's blessing, he waved the scarf, and all the people would answer Amen because it was so big that people couldn't even hear the chasn, they couldn't hear the cantor. So had they no one to say Amen, 
There was a, a, a signal system with different color, different types of, of handkerchiefs or scarves or flags, and the people knew, was it Baruch Hu, Kedusha, um, Amen, Yehesh Rabba, etc., as is done in the, uh, in the service. So he, this is just a text kind of to, to lead us into this conversation that demonstrates how magnificent was the community of Alexandria of Egypt. Problem is, tragically, within a short amount of time, the Jewish community of Alexandria was wiped out. Uh, the Talmud tells us who wiped it out. The Talmud says that no, no, none other than Alexander the Great of Macedonia wiped out the Jewish community of Alexandria. Some commentaries say that it was not Alexander the Great. There's a typo in the Talmud. Um, it's not Alexander the Great. It was one of, it was one of the Roman um, uh, um, leaders. Either way, the community was wiped out. And the Talmud here in text 4b wants to get to the bottom of why this happened, as only the Talmud can. Abayah said, back inside, all of the people who were congregated in that synagogue were killed by Alexander the Great of Macedonia. Why? Says Abayah, it is due to the fact that they violated the prohibition. You shall henceforth return no more that way to Egypt. And they returned. In other words, Abayah says, because they lived in sin. Because the Torah told us that you shouldn't live in Egypt. And you had this whole community of Jews who lived in Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And thus they were living against the violation of Jewish, in violation of Jewish law. And that's why their end was so tragic. Let's continue the narrative in the Talmud. When Alexander, when Alexander arrived, he found them and saw that they were reading the verse in the Torah scroll, God will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth. As the vulture swoops down a nation whose tongue you shall not understand, he reasoned. Alexander, the great reason, I sought to come by ship in 10 days, and a wind carried, and the ship arrived in only five days. Concluding that the verse applied to him, he set upon them and slaughtered them, and that it was the tragic end of the Jewish community of Alexandria. What do we see from here? I, listen, to get into the whole idea of how is the Talmud, how is Abayah justifying horror and suffering, is that right, is that wrong? Way too big of a topic for our conversation. Here's the one sliver of information that we need to extract from this Talmudic passage, and that is that clearly the Talmud is intimating, the Talmud is operating on the premise that living in Egypt was a sin. And this was hundreds of years after Sancherev mixed up the lands. And I hope you're with me in putting together the puzzle pieces. We asked the question, if Sancherev mixed up Egypt, mixed up Egyptians, Egypt, where people are moving all over the place, and that's why you're allowed to marry a convert from Egypt, First generation convert, whatever it is, not a problem. We asked the question, would that apply also to the prohibition of not living in Egypt, right? Was that, not, was that prohibition lifted? Clearly it was not lifted because a few hundred years later, the Talmud is talking about this notion that living in Alexandria was a negative thing in violation of the, command, of the biblical commandment. Had, had we have, would we have said, or would we say, were we to say that since the lands were mixed up, the ban against living in Egypt no longer applies, the Talmud could not have said, well, maybe that's why that community was slaughtered, because that would not have been a problem. Are you with me? Did I just confuse everybody, or did you get what I said? You got me? All right, I see enough nods that I'm okay. Okay. Can we disagree? Well, once I hold on one second. No, no, no not, not yet, not yet. Okay. Because we're, we, we've got to knock through this. So hold on. Let me disagree at the end of the session. Yes, right at the end you can disagree. Good. So again, okay. just to clarify. Just personal to, experience. Just to clarify and not to, not, to, not to go too deep in the analysis right now. So just to clarify what I'm trying to say here. We have this historical fact that Sancherov came and, and disrupted 
the, the, the inhabitants of these various lands. Based on that, we say that the ban against marrying an Egyptian convert is out the window. So I ask the question, is the ban against living in Egypt also out the window? Clearly, the Talmud in text 4b that we just read indicates that the ban is still in place. It's still a problem to live here. And that's maybe why that community, the whole community in Alexandria that lived there hundreds of years after Sancheir mixed up the people, that's why maybe perhaps their, their demise was, uh, was so horrific, was so terrible, because they were living in a place they shouldn't have lived in, which indicates that there's still a problem to live there. Which leads me to a question, and this is really the central question of today's class, and that is, if the lands were mixed up, then what's the problem to live there? Why is the ban against living there still applicable? If the ban against marrying a convert is no longer there, why is the ban against living there still in place? It would seem that the two should be grouped together. If you can marry somebody who converts from Egypt, then you should be able to live there because they're not Egyptian. And if you can't live there, and if you can't live there, right, that means that they are Egyptian, so then how can you marry an Egyptian convert first generation? Yeah, Fred, jump in. They're not Egyptians. They're not Egyptians, but the land itself is a, has I, a prohibition. I hear you, I hear But the, according to Rambam, the issue is because the people, I'm, I understand your distinction. It's not the, it's the, one is the land, one is the people. But that's not the way Rambam explains it. He explains it more about the people, which means that if the, if the people aren't the people, then it shouldn't be a problem, right? In other words, the, the core issue was the people that they're involved, steeped in, in heresy and idolatrous practices and Egyptian ways. And I know what you're saying, well, maybe the culture is still there, even though new people, but the culture is still there. But again, that's not indicated from the, from the halakhic text. It seems to be about the person. By the way, I'm not the one asking this question. This question is asked in, uh, in major halakhic books that understand that the two things are pretty much, two prohibitions are pretty much about the same thing about Egyptians. So if we don't believe that they're Egyptians, in Egypt, because they got moved around, so then why the prohibition to live there, Fred? Jump in. Um, I thought it was because there were no more sparks to be to be oh. uh, found out in, in Egypt. So living Good. and marrying are two different things. Good. So if there's no more sparks to be redeemed, there's no reason for us to be there. So for those of you that are from visiting from, from Olney, from Maryland, so you have to know that Fred is a Kabbalist. So what Fred is doing, <laughs> Fred, no, and, and well, and well learn it. So Fred is actually quoting Kabbalah. In Kabbalah it says that there's no more sparks in Egypt. We took out all the sparks. So therefore there's no purpose. If there's no purpose, then don't live there. Take your energy and put it in somewhere where you can actually make a difference in the world. Good. I'm with you, but halakhically we still have the question. The question is halakhically, like what are you going to do? If it's, if it's about the people, the people are different, so you're allowed to marry, so you should be able to live there. So then what's the problem? Okay, good. So now, before we answer this question, I want to shift gears and answer and address the question that is the elephant in the room. We're going to get back to this question that we're asking about living, the problem with living there. Because now I want to deal with this question. If indeed the prohibition still exists today about living in Egypt, even though Sancherv mixed everybody up, if the prohibition still exists, so then how did Maimonides live in Egypt? How did Radvaz live in Egypt? How did Abarbanel live in Egypt? How did these, you know, these very, very important um, sages, scholars, communities, how do they live in Egypt? What's the deal? Were they all living in sin? Like, what's, what's going on? So there are three classic answers that I want to present. This goes back, I think, maybe Mark asked the question, somebody else asked the question. This, you, you need to know this because it's a, it's a whole area of Jewish thought. It's an area of Jewish law about living in Egypt. So we heard before that you're allowed to travel to Egypt, you're allowed to do business in Egypt, but you can't live there. What about all these rabbis who lived there? How do they do it? 
So here we go. Let's jump into some text. Three different answers. You ready? Buckle up. Here we go. Answer number one is text number five from Rabbi Eliezer of Metz. He lived in the times of Rambam, times of Maimonides, and he wrote Sefer Yireim, and he answers the question with regard, he alludes to the fact that he's dealing, talking about Maimonides, but he talks about how it is that people, Jews, lived in Egypt. So here we go. I have seen and heard of many great Jews that, who went to Egypt, and I was puzzled. How did they justify that? In other words, many Jews moved, prominent Jews, like Maimonides, for example, moved to Egypt and lived there. How is that possible? So he answers. Perhaps it can be explained that since the verse states, you shall not return that way, it only prohibits returning from the land of Israel to Egypt. But to move there from other lands is permissible. Support for this story, sorry, support for this, support for this story comes from national, no. Support for this is the story of the biblical Daniel who traveled from Babylonia to the Egyptian city of Alexandria, etc. So, so the first answer is a really elegant answer. The Sefer says the following. He says, the Torah tells us not to return, right, speaking of Israel, not to go back that way, back to Egypt. So he says, maybe what it means is there's a specific ban in going from Israel to Egypt, but if you live in Spain, for example, if you live in Morocco, I'm just talking about the places that Maimonides lived before he went to Egypt, Spain, Morocco, then you can go to Egypt. But if you're in Israel, you can't go to Egypt. That's one answer. Do we like the answer? All right, I'll let you decide if you like it or not. And the commentaries deal with it. But this is one answer that's offered. I told you, I promise you three answers. That is answer number one. So essentially, we could say that Maimonides didn't do anything wrong. Radvaz didn't do anything wrong. Abarbanel didn't do anything wrong. All these, all these great scholars, they came from other lands originally, other than Israel. And so they moved to Egypt, and that is not biblically prohibited. The only prohibition is moving from Israel to Egypt. Because, essentially, just to explain this a drop, the, the, the root of the Exodus went from Egypt, ultimately, 40 years later, into Israel. And the Torah says, don't reverse that trip. Fine, so don't go to Israel, to Egypt. But if I'm, if I'm in America, if I'm in Spain, if I'm in England, what about going to Egypt? Not a problem. That's answer number one. Okay, think about it. If you like it, great. Answer number two. Here we go. Again, we're going through this pretty quickly. Answer number two comes from the Radvas. The Radvas himself lived in Egypt. He lived a few hundred years after Maimonides, and this is what he writes. We can explain that the Torah only forbade traveling there to Egypt to settle permanently. As the Jerusalem Talmud states, you may not return there to live, but you may return there to do business and trade or to conquer another land. Listen to this, what the Radvas says. By the way, the Radvas was a very, very big Talmud Chacham, scholar, leader, halachic expert, etc. He's no, no small potatoes, a, tr a top, top, top scholar. Listen to what he says. Those who traveled there originally, those who traveled to Egypt originally, did not travel for the sake of settling, but for business. Though they ended up settling there, at that point it only violated a minor statute and did not violate the core prohibition. They felt the excessive burdens associated with relocation and the lack of sufficient available food in surrounding areas justified remaining there. Let me unpack and explain what he just said. The Radvaz, we read it before, we, we, we established it before, so he's not adding anything new. He's just giving us some context. So we learned before that you're allowed to, to travel to Egypt to do business. I'll ask you a question. What happens if you have a business contract that you need to be there for a year? Are you allowed to go to Egypt for a year to do business? Sure. Yeah. As long as it's not permanent. 
So he says, you know how Jewish communities started in Egypt? You had Jews that were traveling to Egypt, and they settled there for business temporarily. But you know how it is. We live in Atlanta. I live in Atlanta. How many people have I met in Atlanta that, why do they live in Atlanta? Because they went to school here. Because they got their first job here. Right? This, that, or the other. Were they initially intending on staying in Atlanta forever? No. But what happens? You know what happens. You move somewhere. And I would imagine our friends from Olney are the same, many of them are in the same boat, right? Is everyone a native of the land? No. What happened was, you might have gone to school around there, maybe you took a job there, and you thought it was only going to be a temporary stint. One thing led to another, and there you are. Or here you are. Wherever you are, there you are. So the same thing is true, says the Radvaz, with historically with how communities got established in Egypt. No one was in violation of the, of the command. No one was saying, you know what? Let's violate biblical prohibition number 46 today. Let's move to Egypt permanently. It's not how it happened. They were traveling for business. They, got, they made money. It was comfortable. The f- war or famine broke out elsewhere. For their safety and security, they stayed there. And then when their kids were born there, sorry, let me just fill in the rest of the narrative. When their kids were born there, the kids didn't move there. They were born there. Again, that's not a sin to be born in Egypt. And that's how, and then... That's it. One generation leads to another. Now you have communities in Egypt. By the way, you always had Jewish communities in Egypt. So the Radvaz is explaining how it happened and, and how it went down. The Radvaz adds that even more so, this is the third point. So point number one, the prohibition might only be from Israel to Egypt. Point number two, if you traveled there temporarily and got stuck, so to speak, permanently, it's not, not, not such a bad thing. Number three, specifically regarding Maimonides, he had a job that he couldn't leave because he was in danger. You know what Maimonides' job in Egypt was? He was the, phys- he was the royal physician. Imagine if he said to the king or to the sultan, whatever they call it, imagine he went to the government and he said, um, King, I'm sorry, I'm out of here. Yeah, the Jew is leaving, right? I got my medical kit and that's it. See you later. They wouldn't let him leave. It was dangerous for him to do that. So Ravaz says, in a case where it's dangerous, you certainly don't have to put your life on the line to, uh, to, to bounce out of Egypt. So here we go. Doctors pass text 6b. As, as says the Radvaz, as for how our teacher Maimonides could have settled in Egypt, we can answer that he was forced by the government to remain there. In other words, he might have been passing through. We know he was passing through. He went from Spain, right, down, he got away from the Almohads, from the radical... Uh, the, the radical Islamists. He went down to northern Africa, went across, was on his way to Israel, went to Egypt, and then he got essentially stuck there. So Radvaz says he was forced by the government to remain there, for he was the physician to the king and the ministers. Says the Radvaz about himself, I too lived in Egypt for quite a while, studying and teaching Torah, and, I, and in fact, I established a yeshiva there. This was permissible, and, and I thereafter relocated to Jerusalem. So Radvaz testifies about himself. There are many scenarios in which one is not intending to live there and move there permanently, but you happen to be passing through, you're there for a little bit, and one thing leads to another, and either it's convenient to stay, or it's dangerous to leave, or a combination of the two, and you're there, and then you have kids there, and then you establish a yeshiva there. Next thing you know, you got a community there, and that's how it happens. Is it a prohibition? Is it a vi- sorry? Is it a violation? It's life. It's life. That's our se- that's our second and third answers. Um, I want to also bring out a very. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this outside because I don't want to get bogged down in this. Um, but there's a rumor, and we even have it in one of the texts. If you have the book. Right? So you see text 7, Kaftar Vaferach, 
beautiful work says that testimony based on a grandson of the Rambam Maimonides that he signed his name, uh, Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon, Maimonides, the one who lives daily in violation of three prohibitions. Because there are three times in the Torah that it says not to live in Egypt. So, so um, uh, the, the, the word on the street is that Rambam used to sign his name, uh, sign his letters about himself, testifying that he lives in violation of living in Egypt. But you should know that not everyone agrees with that. Um, for example, Rabbi Avadya Yosef, the former chief Sephardi rabbi of Israel, he comes out very strongly against it and says there's no way that the Rambam would have, number one, lived in sin, number two, said Lashon Har about himself, disparaged himself by saying he lived in sin. Number three, he wasn't in sin based on all the reasons we said before. Number four, there are no letters that we ever found. We have a lot of writings from Maimonides. There are no letters that we ever found that have that, that, have that uh, PS, I'm living in sin in Egypt. Like he, he, there's, not, there's, no, there's no historical record of that. So he says, he calls out fake news on that. Again, whether it happened or not, I have no idea. I wasn't there. But you should know that it seems clear that Maimonides and others had quite the justification for living there. But, you know, the truth is, back to my original question, why, why the need for all these uh, uh, legalistic and scholarly acrobatics? Why can't we just say the Egyptians aren't Egyptians and there's no more ban, right? Sancher mixed up the, the lands, mixed up the countries. Egypt is not Egypt, right? And, and so you can live there. Why are we going through such a difficult path? If it's true that the convert who converts, the Egyptian convert, is allowed to marry into the community, right? somebody says, I'm converted to Judaism. Sure, welcome, and you can marry whoever you want, if that's the case, because they're not Egyptian. So then what's the problem with going to Egypt and living there without any of these difficult, um, or any of these um, you know, scholarly conversations? To answer this, I'm going to present to you a follow, the following law regarding Rove, regarding majority. So just to give you an update where we are in the class. I'm going to introduce a halakha concept, which will explain the difference between converting and moving to an Egyptian converting versus moving to Egypt. And then we're going to have a final lesson that we can all walk away with. So here we go. Buckle up. It's about to get even more spectacular. Torah law says the following. I'm going to pull up, I'll pull up the case in a moment and the text. But just let me tell it to you outside. Imagine you're in a city. Imagine the main street in your city. And it has nine, sorry, ten butcher shops. Ten shops that sell meat. Nine of them are kosher and one of them is not kosher. You might call it treif. So nine kosher butchers and one not kosher butcher. And now you find a piece of meat somewhere around. Now, I don't know if you would eat meat that's somewhere around, but theoretically, yeah? You found a piece of meat, found a steak, and it's not labeled, and you want to know, is it kosher or not kosher? So we go by rove, we go by the majority, at least biblically. Rabbinically, we say don't eat it, but biblically, you would say that since the majority of the stores are kosher, right, nine out of ten are kosher, so the presumption is if meat is now came out of those stores, so which store did it come out of? Nine-tenths, like nine out of ten odds, right, the odds are in their favor that it's, that it's a kosher, that kosher meat from a kosher store, and thus you are allowed to eat it. Let me show this to you in, from the, uh, the Code of Jewish Law. Here we go, this is going to be text number nine. We'll do this pretty quickly. Text 9, the following applies, says the Code of Jewish Law, when there are nine stores selling kosher meat and one that sells treif, not kosher, meat found in the market of such a town or in the possession of a Gentile is permissible by biblical law. Permissible, that's the key word, because most of the stores sell kosher meat. You go by rove, you go by the majority, nine stores are kosher, one is not, 
meat that comes out of the stores can be presumed to be from one of the kosher stores because nine out of 10 are kosher. You go by the majority. However, what happens if we twist the scenario a drop? Not that you found the meat somewhere out of the stores, but you went to one of the stores to purchase meat and you forgot which store you purchased from. Now, why would you purchase from the non-kosher store? Who knows? How would you forget? Who knows? But the scenario is that you- supermarket. Could be the supermarket. You went to the supermarket. No, but that's going to confuse us. No, no, no. The supermarket is not a good because we want to keep the store separate because that's going to work in our example. But you're right. There is a scenario where you might have not been sure what you bought. That's a good point. But we have to, just to be clear on the case, there are 10 different stores. Nine are kosher. One is not. And here, I mean, let's, let's look at the case inside. Again, this is from the Code of Jewish Law, from the same section. But here there's a twist and a different law. The following applies when there are nine stores selling kosher, one selling non-kosher. If one purchased meat from one of the stores and it is unknown which store it was purchased from. So you know you went into one of the stores, but you can't remember which store it was. It is forbidden. You don't go by majority. It's forbidden. For when something is fixed in its place, we assume a 50-50 chance of its permissibility. And here we have the difference between when meat goes out of the store or when you go into the store. If the meat comes out of the store, and I can stop sharing because this is, this is kind of the key idea here. When the meat is outside of the store, so now you have the stores in the background and the meat is right here. The stores are there, the meat is here, and you're looking at the meat and you have 10 stores and now you go by the majority of the stores. Nine out of 10 are kosher. Odds are this is kosher. Biblically, it's permitted. But when you didn't find the meat here outside the store, you got the meat from inside the store. The odds that that store is kosher, not kosher, it's 50-50. It might be kosher, it might not be kosher. Right? Every single store has a 50-50 chance of it either it was the kosher store or it wasn't the kosher store. So it's no longer the piece of meat looking at all the stores collectively. It's looking at one store. And the odds of that store, whether it was kosher or not, either it was or it wasn't, it now is a 50-50. There's no majority anymore of kosher, and thus it is prohibited. So again, just to, to clarify this wrinkle, if the meat is found out of the stores, it's kosher. But if you went into the store, it's not kosher. That's the law. With this, we can answer a question about the Egyptians. When the Egyptian converts, that means they're stepping out of Egypt, right? Stepping out of Egypt, you go by majority. When the meat comes out, you then look at the, at the larger collective. So when the, when the person says, the Egyptian says, you know what, I'm stepping out of my native land and I am converting to Judaism, right? Will you welcome me? Yes. And then you look at the totality of, Egypt, of the Egyptians. Most are not Egyptian. Most are not native Egyptians. You can convert. You can marry. No problem. But when you go into the store, when you go into Egypt, so now it's no longer you look at the whole. You look, it's 50-50 because every Egyptian influence is potentially originally Egyptian. So you can no longer look at the totality. You have to go 50-50. There's no longer a majority, and thus it is prohibited to live there. This is the way our sages, the scholars, answer this. Let me show it to you inside the text so that you see it for yourself. Okay? Um, hold on. Let's do text 11 and 12. Although Sancherv, the Lavush says, in the 1500s. Although Sancherv uprooted the nations and placed others in their stead, a minority of Egyptians certainly remained in their place. Thus, an Egyptian in Egypt would be considered in his original place, and therefore the majority principle cannot be applied. 
Nevertheless, 11b, this individual who now converts is considered to have left his place, and the rule is that when something is no longer in its place, it is assumed to be part of the majority, therefore they are permitted to convert and marry into the Jewish community immediately. Says the Rebbe in text 12 on this basis, the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch, Maimonides and the Code of Jewish Law rule, that today an Egyptian convert may marry a Jew because by their very act of their conversion, they have left their place. In contrast, the other Egyptians who remained in Egypt, though they are a minority, are considered fixed in their place. Therefore, because of them, the prohibition against settling in Egypt so that one should not learn from their behavior remains in effect. Thus, what we see from all of this is that when the Egyptian steps out of Egypt, out of the community, and says, I want to join the Jewish people, I want to convert, we say, this now is out of the original space, you now look at the majority. The majority is probably not originally Egyptian. This person is allowed to convert and marry right away. No problem. But if you go into Egypt, you're now on, those, on that turf in their home field territory, in their home field advantage. You cannot now. It's, it's, it's a negative influence. Even if most are not originally Egyptian, since you're in, in that turf, on that space, or in that space, Every, every single thing that you encounter could either be 50-50 chance, and thus there's no more majority, and that's why it is prohibited still today to move there and live there permanently, unless we said before, one went for business and got stuck, or whatever it is, or safety and security and got stuck. That's the exception, but the rule is, even till this very day, one should not move and settle permanently in Egypt. So what does this mean for us? The final takeaway, and then we'll close out today's class. What this means for us is like this. Everyone in our lives, each one of us, we all have in Egypt, a personal Egypt. Spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, there are things that act as our kryptonite. Challenges that we have, spiritual challenges, vices, passions that are, that are unholy. We have um, internal challenges, etc. And we're trying to get away from those. The Torah is reminding us that when it comes to Egypt, we had an exodus. And when you get out of Egypt, the best thing is not to go back, right? One more time, right? One last time, one last, uh, one last tango. Not, not a good idea. The way it works when it comes to our personal Egypts, we all have an Egypt. We all have that enemy, that foe, that nefarious uh, challenge to our spiritual standing, our mental health, our psychological health and wellness. And the bottom line is, when you left Egypt, keep, when you leave Egypt, keep on walking. Don't look back. I want to echo the words that the angel said to Lot and his wife. They said, when you leave and Sodom is being burned behind you, don't look back. And what happens when Lot's wife turns back? She turns into a pillar of salt. Yeah? She turns into a pillar of salt. Why? Because when we turn back, when we get nostalgic about the good old days, sometimes we freeze. She got stuck in her place. We freeze and the move, the forward movement gets stopped, right? We were moving, we were past that, but then we made the mistake of turning around and the moment we turned around, that's it. Forward progress is stalled. So here is the big idea. Here's the big takeaway. The big takeaway is get out of Egypt, keep on moving, don't go back. Don't turn back. Now, somebody comes out of Egypt. Great. Somebody comes out of Egypt. We come out of Egypt. Holy, pure, kosher. Going back into Egypt. Right? That's the difference. Someone comes out of Egypt, converts, and wants to marry. No problem. Someone left Egypt. Mazel tov. We do a dance and a hora. 
and a kazatska. But going back into Egypt, to go back there, unholy, not kosher, not a good idea, not recommended, not good for our spiritual health, psychological health, emotional health, etc. Don't get stuck. There are two pieces of glass in an automobile in front of us. A big piece of glass and a little piece of glass. We call the big piece of glass the windshield. The little piece of glass we call the mirror. And I'm giving you advice. This is drive, driver's ad. You can count it toward your local DMV for credits. You can count like 30 seconds of credits right now. Don't focus on the little piece of glass. If you're trying to drive and you're looking in your rear view mirror, you ain't gonna get too far. That's gonna be not recommended. Do not drive looking backwards. If you wanna drive, look for, you gotta check your mirrors on occasion, make sure all is kosher behind you, but you can't drive forward while checking your rear view mirror. My friends, this is the big idea of tonight. The big idea is let's get out of Egypt and keep on moving. Keep on moving forward. Somebody wrote in the chat, that we should do text 13. Who am I to say no, especially since it's from the Rebbe. Conclusion, final text 122. One whose Torah observance lacks passion hasn't fully left Egypt. Inasmuch as he takes no pleasure in spirituality but does everything only because he must, he automatically is being chased by Pharaoh and his army who wish to enslave him again. In other words, the, con the confines of the Eight Sahara and the animal soul still have a hold on him, limiting expression of the divine soul. So the Rebbe says, what is the sign that you've left Egypt? that you have passion in your spiritual growth. When we don't have passion, it means maybe the Egyptians are still a little bit, have a hold on us. So what's the point? Let's bust out of Egypt. Let's embrace a holy path. No reason to go back. Nothing Rabbi, there. can I ask you a question? Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, thank you to the person who said, let's, re let's read the, you know, the last part. Because my question is, when... Rambam eventually got out of Egypt. And I, I guess my question is, do you think that he wrote his 13 principles of faith once he got into Israel? Because maybe he was so spiritually um, confined when he was in Egypt. And then once he moved out of Egypt, he was like, oh my gosh, let me write these 13 principles of faith because my neshama just exploded. So he actually passed away in Egypt. Oh. His body was relocated to the Holy Land and buried in the Holy Land in Tiberias, Tiberia. But he actually passed away in Egypt. So the Radvaz, who we also quoted, he was the one who had a yeshiva and then ultimately moved while he was alive and, and went, to, went to Israel. But Maimonides passed away in Egypt. So, and Maimonides wrote his works obviously when he was still outside of Israel. So I like the concept, but, you know, spiritually the concept works, right? But Maimonides was a special guy. I mean, I can't even imagine how he organized Jewish law the way he did without any computers, word processing, no copying and pasting. You got to get it right. I mean, no whiteout. I mean, maybe they had some sort of whiteout then. I cannot even imagine. I can't. It's not even possible for you and I to fathom a scholar who could take literally thousands of pages of the Talmud, organize them, rewrite them in a beautifully organized 14-volume structure with no computing, no, I mean, no, no technology computing, only in your head and on whatever paper, whatever you're writing. It's, it's 
It's unbelievable. It boggles the mind how such an, a, a, a work of scholarship could have been composed, I mean, 900 years ago. It's, 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 um, it's mind-boggling. I mean, to be that, to be that um, yeah. spiritual and have that much faith in Hashem without even leaving Egypt ever, yeah. it's amazing. Now, again, he wasn't born in Egypt. He was born in Spain and then Morocco. And, but yeah, he was, he was Maimonides. He's the, he's the dude. What are you going to say? Okay, well, I thank you for clearing that up. My pleasure. Any other questions, comments? I see some folks are, yes. I, um, what I read about the Rambam uh, seems to not agree with what you've said. And so maybe you ought to check it out because I think I read it in the Wikipedia, which may be wrong. <laughs> but uh, that he left Spain and uh, then had to leave Morocco or thereabouts because of this uh, very right. bad Almohads or whatever they were. Yeah. Right. And uh, but there he went then to Palestine, but he couldn't make a living in Palestine. So he went to Cairo uh, to make a living. That's what I read. So he didn't pass from there. But you might want to check it out with some other source. Hold on one second. Wait, wait. So which which issue is incorrect that where he passed away or that he went from Israel to Egypt? That he went from Israel to Egypt. That Palestine is identified with Israel. As right. That. So, so just to clarify, that's not my, my facts. I mean, that's nothing to do with me. This is something that, um, that the, the, um, we had in the text of, give me a second. This was text five, the Sefer Yireim. So he says that how could Jews, many great Jews, go to Egypt? Perhaps it could be explained that the prohibition is only going from Israel to Egypt, but not, uh, not elsewhere. So he, does he specifically say he's referring to Rambam? No. Um, but he's, okay. he lived in the times of Maimonides, so it seems like he was, uh, he was alluding to it. But you're right. If the journey was that way, then that one, one of three answers would not apply. It seems like it would not apply. We'd have to lean on the other few, which say basically either it was a temporary situation that became more permanent due to circumstance, or it was a life-threatening situation where he really couldn't leave because his life was in danger. But that's a good, it's a, it's a good note to keep in mind when we think about answer number one, which specified that the, the route, the specifically prohibited route is Israel to, to Egypt, which may have been the case with Maimonides. It's interesting, um, we would have to look it up to see if he stopped anywhere else, if maybe that would have moved it out of the direct Israel to Egypt route. I don't know, we would have to look that up, but that's a very good, a very good um, point. Something to check out. Yes. Exactly. I, know I read it that way somewhere. Phyllis, yeah, no, for sure. Phyllis, jump in. Yes, I was just wondering whether Egypt is a metaphor for all foreign lands. The concept from the, the beginning was that Jews should live in Israel. Uh, since Egypt was a very large, you know, they, they dominated a very large swath of the world to the uh, people from that piece of the world. Uh, was it meant that you should live in Israel, pay to other countries, business in other places, but if you're going to make a home and raise children and right. have your life in a special place, it should always be back in Israel. The I, concept is Jews should live in Israel, right. in the land that God gave them. I, I hear that. Um, so, yeah, no, I hear that. I mean, it, I, I, I hear that. But it's when you look at the the way the halacha is is codified, it says specifically Egypt, 
and I, 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 I 100% understand what you're saying. And the image that I get is that New Yorker, the cover, the famous cover of the New Yorker, where you know New York is big, and then like France and England, like all those small countries. So maybe one could say that the Jews then that 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 the the community then was myopic. So it's like Israel, and then Egypt is represented everywhere else. Um, I, I know that's what you're saying. Um, I, I hear that it's an interesting take. It's just I don't I don't see it in halacha. And it seems like there is, look, I can't say that it's not about, you know, an encouragement to live in Israel, because um, it certainly is, but it seems like the prohibition is specifically exclusively to Egypt, as, as a specific oh, I, land. I understand, yeah. but, uh, but initially, didn't God give Israel to the Jewish people, and this was their home, and this is where they were supposed to yeah. reside? Yeah. You know, you could do business, you, you could spend as much time as you want someplace else, but this is an encouragement to stay right. in one place you know to this is your your goal should always be to return right. i don't that that's the way i know i hear you I, I i like it i hear you but again i don't know if it's halachic as i don't know if it's as if the ban if the legal ban is on every other country like it is indeed on egypt to this very day essentially so but i'm with you conceptually i'm with you conceptually I like I like the message. I like the message. Um, if you uh, if you look at Ramban's life and his history, um, you you see that he was not a fearful guy, and and was pretty self assured. This maybe I don't know. I I, I would challenge anyone to say. Uh, that that there's a better commentary on the Bible than Rambam. To me, he's the ultimate commentary. Right. And alongside that, I would say, I, I would put the Rebbe right next to Rambam. So, so I like it. Uh, as I so admire the, the the Rebbe's take on life and everything, really is it, it's incredible. If you study, if you ever can appreciate the the Hebrew of the Rebbe's, just by the uh, his Hebrew alone is the most poetic. Maybe next to Moshe Rabbeinu's Bible, I would say it um, his comments on for me and and. Um, you know, uh, being too emotional, probably, but but um, you know, if you look at Rambam's comments and you look at the rabbit's comments on anything, they are in, in the Hebrew, which you know, and, and I'm not trying to be uh, 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 over everybody. Uh, I just have studied Hebrew my whole life. And, uh, and etymology is one of my favorite things to look at, and basically in life. It's my hobby. Um, you look at the words, you look at what they both say about what's happened, you, you kind of sense what the Rebanosho alum, uh, for me, uh, wants from us. And from this world, and and today's lesson is amazing, 
because what you see is what God wants from us. And you really do see it in this lesson. And basically, God says, do the right thing. Right. And it's not that hard to get. And God says to you, you know what? If you're a decent person, it's not that so difficult for you to do. Just do the right thing. Chazan Ben, what you're saying is, like Nike once said, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. That's it. With a logo of it, with a chauffeur logo. All right, my friends. I want thank you, thank you, Shkach. I want to thank all of our friends, both from Atlanta and from Maryland, for joining us. Only Maryland, and perhaps the surrounding areas. I don't know exactly how things are, and huh? No, 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 no. Yeah. We should have done it maybe at the beginning. All right. Um, so that's it. Yes. Harambam was influenced by... Oops. We can't hear you. Oh, you cut out. Rabbi Harambam was influenced by a philosophy which, which is Hellenistic. And, and he was influenced mainly no. through, through Arabic philosophy. So I don't want to... So, so, uh, what? so he was influenced no, by... Sorry. One second, time out, hold on, hold on, one second. One second, one second. No, no, I, this is about, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to mute everybody because uh, this is going to take us... I don't, I don't want... <laughs> this is not a platform for, uh, for inter... Uh, um, you know, for debates going on. We, we had the Torah class. I want to thank everybody for coming out and uh, for questions about the philosophy of Rambam and other things. We'll have to have further conversations, but I definitely don't want this to, uh, to, to, uh, to devolve into a back and forth. All right, thank you, friends, for joining, and I want to wish everybody an Erev Tov, a good evening, lots of blessings, lots of, uh, of happiness and blessings and good health, and we'll see you all soon. Take care, everybody. Pleasure.